FIS Castaway, the podcast keeping you in the know about the shipping and commodity world. To keep up to date, sign up to our FIS Live app at www.fis-live.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm Chris Hudson and you're listening to Castaway, FIS's freight and commodity podcast. It is Wednesday the 3rd of November, not too far away from Christmas now. And we have on this week's episode uh, a special guest, um, Holly Burkett, reporter at Trade Winds. Uh, but before that, uh, we have Kerry and Theo with us uh, to discuss the falling freight, iron ore and ferrous markets and rocketing ferts, and also kind of flatlining oil market that we've got at the moment. So if I again looked at my uh, home screen on FIS Live this morning, what a difference a week and a month roll makes, mm. or a few weeks. So the Cape 5TC front month future, now in that mid 20,000 range, having been, was it 66,000 that, yep. that top that it hit a few weeks in, ago? Uh, a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, basically. So, yeah. Aussie coal prices have cooled a bit down, moving off that $400 mark down to 370s, and the Sing very low sulfur fuel oil slipped below the $600 mark on that uh, main front future. So, cooling off is probably a, a review of the whole thing before we get into actually what's been happening behind the scenes. But in terms of the news, uh, the climate summit COP26 began in Glasgow with India making commitment of net zero by 2070. Uh, there was also a deal on deforestation, stopping that uh, by 2030, and on reducing methane emissions. All were announced. Uh, China told its citizens to stockpile food uh, with the new tightening of COVID restrictions there. New Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida beat the polls, uh, winning a majority for the ruling Liberal Democrat Party there. Uh, the US and EU came to an agreement and their spat over steel and aluminium tariffs imposed by Donald Trump in 2018. And Republican Glenn Yokin won the Virginia governor election in a blow to President Biden ahead of the midterms next year. Uh, but in terms of indexes, what have we seen week on week? It's obviously Tuesday the 26th versus Tuesday the 2nd yesterday. Well, Brent and most of the products coming off, uh, down 2.2% on Brent. Uh, the high sulfur fuel oils down 4.4% on the ROP, 435.30. Sing 380 ending 453, down 3.5%. Uh, the very low sulfur fuel oils down both over 2%, 567 on the ROT and 595 on the Sing. But the mover up of the week is the high fives again, continuing up 133 on the ROT high five. That's obviously the difference between the very low sulfur fuel oil and the high sulfur fuel oil, up 2.3%. And the Sing High Fives, up 2.2%, 142 bucks. Kerry, what about the freight? Another week of steep falls. Uh, the Cape Size 5 TC average, 30,987 as of last night. That is down 12,998 or 29.5% week on week. Panamax 4 TC average at 31,461. That's down 5,278 or 14.3%. And on the iron ore, Theo, what have we seen there? On the iron ore, we've actually finally reached double digits. Uh, Plat 62% yesterday settled at $96.45, which is down $26.30. That's 21% week on week. The uh, 65 fast markets settled at $113.90. That's $29.30 down. And that's, again, 20% week on week. And the 65-62 spread is at $17.45, which is down $3.00. That's 12.7% week on week. And then to round off the indexes with the tankers and carbon, TC2 up 2.3%, 125 closing, 127.50 on the TC5 or 1.8% up. Down on the VLs, TD3C minus 1.9% at 45.14. And TD25, 105 down 16% at 
And the EUA futures, that's the compulsory European markets, we were 59 euro 79, and we are closing yesterday was 59.46 on those. But what's actually been happening behind the scenes and the big movers down in the week on the iron ore and freight? So, Kerry, why don't we start with you and see what the hell's been happening there? <laughs> well, another week, another steep, brutal fall in the cakes. Uh, the word bloodbath starting to seem a touch mild now when we look at both the paper and the physical to describe this market. There's a variety of reasons for the ongoing fall, uh, which it doesn't need to be said, I think, uh, has been far, far steeper now than, uh, than many of us expected um, initially. I think the most salient one is the fact that the market overall has finally been processing the implications of the broad financial problems emerging from many of China's large property developers. Simply put, the market has perceived the fact we are witnessing the end of essentially a 25-year cycle of property boom in China, and this is going to affect construction demand and indeed uh, steel demand, um, uh, certainly as this changes. Um, in the more immediate sense, this pairs with further sharp cuts in steel production being seen in China. Uh, on the physical market, we've also seen a substantial drop in congestion at Chinese ports during October, which has contributed to the drop in freight rates as well on the physical market. Uh, and while September shipments ex Australia were quite high, October shipments were down on that. Uh, on the paper side of things, we also have seen some market participants either stopping out of long positions or looking to cover uh, short put option positions, a lot of which were taken out when the market was much higher. Uh, and this has led to ongoing substantial downward pressure on that paper. The debt contract trading at 22,250 this morning, that's down 11K week on week. And as you pointed out, that front month was up at over 66,000 yep. at the peak uh, yep. on October the 6th, I believe. Um, with uh, the Q1 this morning at 15,000 value on FIS Live. Panamaxes have also been under extreme pressure now this week, uh, dragged down by the capes finally, uh, in a general, and generally negative market sentiment, I should say. It's worth noting that despite both basins being in the red at the moment on the physical index, I think the prospects for the Panas should hopefully get some support from the likelihood of increased thermal coal imports into Europe over the next few months due to the gas crunch. Uh, it's hard to feel that right now, though, especially with the Cape 5 TC average now below the Panamax 4 TC average. And therefore, we are indeed entering territory where people really will look to combine Panamax shipments where possible. Uh, December Panamax 4TC trading 22,400 this morning with the Q1 at 18,350. Significant coming off on those markets yeah. as well. And it, something similar in the Ferris markets as, as well, Theo, with uh, double digits on that 62%. Uh, yes, agreed. Pretty much exactly what Kerry had to say. I'll probably have to rehash a bit of that. But I thought I'd give it to you on a week-on-week -week play the iron ore market. So last Monday, the PBOC doubled down on its seven-day reserve repo insurances and injected a sum of 190 billion RMB last Monday to maintain liquidity and confidence in the banking system. Despite that relatively tighter supply scenario and expansive PBOC market operations, investors were more concerned about the latest COVID-19 outbreaks and sending futures down to US dollar 118 by the middle of the week. Markets were relieved by the news advising property developers to meet offshore and onshore debt obligations, even if that meant using their own personal wealth. By Wednesday now, despite the PBOC injecting a measly 100 billion RMB, the market was spooked by Beijing's vice mayor commenting on ensuring air quality during the capital's Winter Olympics. The market freaked out at the prospect of more significant environmental measures 
and restrictions on heavy industry and futures, iron ore futures were selling off to an interest rate low of $114.60. Reports then on Thursday surface of emerging Tanshan blast furnace restrictions has sparked a sell-off to a four-week low of $107.40. The realization set in that the emergency Tanjang environmental restrictions are here and are here now and the real impact on blast furnace operations and consumption. So let's bring on Monday this week. Seaborne iron ore prices fell on the 1st of November as the market pessimism continued. The ferrous complex was in turmoil due to the announced winter production cuts and demand for physical traders almost ceased. Mills at the same time shifted interest from benchmark products such as the mid to high grade 62 to the 58% or alternative ores, which then decreased, of course, the demand for the benchmark directly. Uh, China Shanghai Group decreased their early November rebar prices by 601 per tonne, while China's Zenith Group decreased rebar early November prices by 401 per tonne, which produced a sharp fall on rebar futures in the first couple of days of the week. Bring on Tuesday. The futures of Dalian for January delivery fell by 9.9% day on day and were down at 62.5 RMB to 565.5 per metric tonne during the morning trading session on Tuesday. The rebar futures also followed the downward trend and dropped 8% day on day or down 368 RMB to 4,230 RMB per metric tonne during the morning session. That bearish sentiment outlook on the low steel demand, despite China reporting fast factory output in October with a four-month high of PMI reading of 50.6%. Steel consumption is expected to struggle with poor property infrastructure construction activity, while some traders particip uh, participants believe that the steel production restrictions may extend uh, towards the, the start of the Winter Olympics uh, next year. And China's iron ore inventories rebounded 19.89% from mid-June to 144.92 million tonnes, which has created a five-year high overseen over this period. Iron ore inventories were expected to grow, though, in the next few months as uh, storage demand on port areas in case of delivery interruptions and port closures due to pandemic or systemic issues. That's a wrap. But where's the floor, Theo? We keep looking at this. The 20% drops, the 20% drops week on week. Where's the floor? Oh, I've, I've been bearish for a long time. I, I think it's going to have a seven handle on it, but let's see. Let's see. It's not very possible. <laughs> My personal opinion, I should state for compliance reasons. But yeah, yeah. The floor's uh, so low, it's in the basement. Isn't it? <laughs> um, but rounding off our main products of the week, just quickly on oil, because it's, it's not been exciting, as exciting as the freight and iron ore markets, that's for sure. Uh, we did see a drop into the end of the week, but we have leveled out this kind of 84, 85 range on the, on the Brent. Uh, and that initial drop was off the back of comments from Iran's top nuclear negotiator, uh, saying that he had agreed um, agreements with uh, the six world, six world powers about the uh, country's nuclear program. This is something similar to what was there in 2015. Um, so you could be seeing a lot of Iranian oil, or people are thinking you could be seeing a lot of Iranian oil coming back onto the market if they can finalize it with uh, yeah. some more people there. So that was the kind of reasoning, main reason for the drop there, and we've kind of flatlined since. Um, in terms of products, you've seen that where the indexes have dropped down with that Brent movement down, uh, and we have hardly seen any movement on those products as well uh, since kind of started this week. But the, the big movers, or the actual movers, uh, compared to the rest of the market, has again been that high five spread, the difference between the very low sulfur and high sulfur fuel oil. 
continues to rise, as we said last week, the week yeah. before, and that further widening the spread uh, with that weakness in the high sulfur fuel oil is persisting. You can see again with that crack value falling from minus 1385 to minus 1450 close uh, yesterday. And with their falling FOGOs as well, it does seem that that trend, that widening trend is going to continue. So if you've, you've got a scrubber, good on you. If you haven't, should have hedged. <laughs> But a uh, load of other little bits and pieces which are coming out in terms of the news. China's National Food and Strategic Reserves Administration said it will release state oil product reserves uh, to the domestic market. Um, we've got all the things about OPEC members failing to meet the uh, output yeah. increase targets. So actually they're underproducing again. And that's obviously laying some sort of support into the market after the uh, Iranian news. Again, builds in the EIA stocks last week, uh, crude stocks up gasoline down and distillate down. So we've seen demand increase, but in terms of crude production, that's still filling stocks there. And they do expect another build this week. So it'll be something to look out for later today when the EIA do publish those statistics later on. And again, what we produced, what we're talking about last week on the fertilizer markets. Again, we, we saw the Indian tender, which has pushed up across the board, all those products. Uh, Nola Urea, they put out a tender for 465,000 tons uh, for that. And price levels came in around 895 bucks, 925 bucks is the range. It's incredible. And the thing is, is that's across the board. Same with DAP and the international futures it has cooled off a bit since we had that tender at the start of the week. But we're expecting another one um, within a week. So definitely keep an eye, eyes peeled on that market if that's something which is affecting you as well. But um, after those big falls, it's bringing us to the main event of the week, which is obviously Holly from Tradewinds, who will be talking about, I guess, mainly the dry freight and everything that's been going on in that market. And it has been an incredible year. We did look at some of the figures to start with. And, and this is Cape Market. It was over a 700% increase since the low of the year. Panamax, 240% increase. Uh, Supermax, 250% increase in prices. This has been a volatile dry freight market. Oh God, yeah. But how has that? How has it been covering such a crazy year in the in this market? It's been really fun, actually. <laughs> um, I've I've loved it. I've had a great time. I mean, um, I, so I've been doing the. I've worked for Tradewinds for about two and a half years, almost three years. And um, you know, for the first two years that I've been there, no one wanted to know about dry bulk. Um, you know, last year when things were really, really depressed, you know, analysts equities analyst um even stopped writing about it in the in their kind of daily research notes and and so for this year to have a year where absolutely everyone is interested in everything i write simply because try has been doing so well oh my I, i've just you know so many great stories um new sources coming out of the woodwork and it's kind of been a new one on me that people are actually uh really engaged with what i've been writing but also um have have been um have been it's been so widely read and like you know it's been uh, I've had such a good time and and um yeah and it's I mean obviously the past six weeks it's just got even more interesting in the way that things have kind of fallen off. So. Have there been any particular highlights of stories or interesting bits or even I find it quite interesting people who have no interest in markets and freight whatsoever who have gone oh it must be a busy time for you right now uh, <laughs> exactly. suddenly interested in this thing which exactly. they have no idea. Um, I think, um, I, 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 I tend to try and write, I, 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 shipping is, has a bad habit of making itself seem more boring than it actually is. And so anything I try and write, I always try and make it something that I myself would find interesting to read. Um, and 
this year, I mean, I mean, as I've said, it's been kind of a gift, but I've had, I've had so much fun writing about FFAs. And part of the reason for that, I think, is because you only the people who have had hands-on experience in trading FFAs or whatever actually know how they work. And there's these wide swathes of, of people in shipping who are interested in them, but may not necessarily um, understand them that well, but want to. Um, and so I thought, okay, well, let me write whenever I, and I, there's a strong story comes up about to do with FFAs, I always think, okay, well, let me write that in a way that's really accessible to people. Um, and also kind of reflects some of the, the kind of the colorful traders and characters, brokers, whoever, <laughs> who were yeah. also involved in this market. Um, and so that is how I managed to get the phrase tighter than a crab's ass into trade wind, which has <laughs> got to be a first. And Brilliant. so, you know what I mean? And, um, and so, yeah, I, I think I've, I've just I've just really tried to kind of bring across some of the, the personality that's present in this market, but also, like I say, try to make it intelligible to the average, you know, and, and that's so important. I mean, we've seen we've seen that interest mm -hmm. in the FFAs manifested in the record volumes this mm -hmm. year, right? I mean, we've seen gosh, smashed through a million days already on uh, on Panamax traded in the markets this year. Um, Cape, I believe, is headed towards that figure. You've beaten two thousand eight. Yeah. Exactly. Figures, so. We've beaten 2008 figures and, and will do substantially by the end of the year. <clears throat> you know, Supermax options, even um, formerly a relatively small segment, up something like 82% year on year, I believe. So, you know, it's uh, we've seen Absolutely. the necessity for people to come into the FFA market, given the volatility this year, mm -hmm. to hedge their positions. But, you know, we've also seen questions from people who have never before looked at this. Yeah, exactly. And saying, look, I need to get involved in this. So. Yeah, totally. And also, don't forget that this this year, um, particularly earlier this year, there was a big um, increase in investor interest in 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 buying bulker stocks. Um, part of which was, I guess, fueled by this whole commodity super cycle story or non-story. Yeah. And so suddenly, you have all of these new people who suddenly own part of a bulker company, and they're reading the twenty F or the financial reports, and they're thinking, "Oh, what's an FFA?" <laughs> exactly. um, so you know you're probably getting you're just getting more and more people who um who are interested in it coming from that side too so i think yeah as a as a journalist or anyone you know people like you guys the castaway podcast um anyone who's trying to put information out there for, for people who are who are interested in this and make it accessible i think that's really important and and particularly if as people have predicted this 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 dry this upturn in the dry sector goes on until 2023 or whenever it is um i think we're all kind of hopefully serving useful purpose by um by putting all this information out there for people and uh, kerry alluded to, alluded to it in terms of the start of his report on capes uh their bloodbath maybe on that but we have seen a big sell-off in the market recently and i guess Kerry, we'll get your opinion on this because everyone in shipping wants to know what's your opinion on what will happen next. It's the, <laughs> the ultimate thing of futures will tell you where the market it's a dangerous, is. Dangerous, well, dangerous game. Yeah, very dangerous. Well, with the information that we have right now, it's probably that, but that could always change. But do you see kind of a sign of um, uh, this is going to be a lower future now, or as we said, that we actually could be seeing higher rates for longer, and this is just a, a temporary blip in the market uh, coming off recently? Um. I, I think if we're talking about capes, then you need to expect drama, whether it's to the upside or the downside. Um, I think that 
I think Kerry, yeah, Kerry, so Kerry in his opening remarks alluded to this kind of thinking process that the um, that the dry market has. So something will happen, be it bad uh, macro news or um, something that will have demand implications for dry commodities. And my job is to go around and ask people, what are the implications for the dry freight market? And the week that this macro news comes out, all of my stuff was almost sorry. All of my sources will come back and say, "Oh, we don't, we don't see any impact." And then, a week later or so, it takes a couple of weeks for this rationalization process to go ahead, and then, and then the impact will felt uh, will be That's felt. That's so true. And so, yeah. <laughs> it kind of takes a while for the dry market to um, to form its opinions, and then also gauge what other people's opinions in the market are as well. And I think this, we actually saw this on a much smaller scale um, in early September with the guinea coup, um, yeah. you know, and my job was to go around and say, okay, what's going to happen with bauxite with this new military coup that's going on in Guinea? And everyone said, it's a closed market. It's a closed shop. There's going to be no effect on the wider uh, Campsall Max Cape size market. And actually, Gave it, give it a couple of weeks, and Vale actually did take a position on it. They they went out and um, defensively, I think they fixed between 15 to 20 ships for October on the back of it. And the fact that, that uh, they did that, that had ripples throughout the spot market, throughout the rest of the spot market. Um, so, and now here we are again, you know, um, it's taken a little, a few weeks for all of this um, macro news to kind of, for people to think about it and digest it. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've been hearing also, since. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but you know, it's so, <laughs> we've ahead, been hearing since God early September, I guess, at the latest. Um, you know that uh, that steel production curbs were likely to increase in Q4. We knew they had to if China was going to keep to its commitment to to not increase steel production year on year. Um, and yet, yeah, it, it wasn't until sort of middle of October that suddenly this starts to actually like the penny drops. So, you know, um, it's interesting that delay. And then also, I think to some degree, to some degree, this probably was expected um, because, you know, going into 2022, um, it's been so backwardated. Um, well, even more so now, I guess. Um, it was going to need to sell off at some point. Yeah. Um, so why not do it now? Um, are people really that patient that they're going to wait to sell at the end of November or December? Probably not. Well, you, so, you got, and then you, you got, get yeah. this pile on effect. Exactly. And then, and then, of course, in my experience, you know, the market sort of once it's in this sort of, I hesitate to say panic, but when it's in deep correction mm -hmm. mode, let's say uh, every piece of news that feeds into it sort of then gets taken to mean, you know, to reinforce this, uh, this attitude that, you know, the, the world is sort of ending. Um, and uh, and I'm, it certainly wouldn't have helped yesterday when the Chinese announced that citizens should start stockpiling food in preparation for lock <laughs> further lockdowns. Um, and so uh, that's you know the the general sentiment is just is 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 just absolutely negative at the moment on the back of all this. Oh, but human yeah. nature. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's why the futures market does tend to overshoot, probably too. As both well. ways. So, yeah, exactly. Both ways. So yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so I, I I fear it's probably a bit of an overreaction, but um, I mean, they've got their reasons. <laughs> But to nick a, a social media share mm -hmm. from you, Holly, of the someone else I think was pointing out the similarities of the market now compared to 2013, where we had this huge sell-off into kind of that That's October, right. November, yeah. and then actually we see a quite significant recovery back towards the top levels 
um, that we saw uh, a few weeks ago. So actually, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme all the time. <laughs> so is this another 2013? Oh, <laughs> people have been saying that year, that all year. I mean, what what year is it? I mean, earlier this year, I was talking to someone who was saying. Oh, it's 2007 right now. It's oh, not, it's not, no, it's 2006 <laughs> right now. It's not quite 2007. Next year is going to be 2007. At the moment, we're 2006. <laughs> and now I guess we're in 2013. So, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, there, there's fundamental support out there, isn't there, in the market? That's what I keep thinking. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to go out on too much of a limb here. But, I mean, I guess, Holly, you will have seen that, you know, if I if you cover the S&P market at all on, on the dry bulk side, I mean, that order books stayed very, very low, hasn't it? Um, you know, for new building vessels. Uh, yeah, it has. It has. Um, but I've also been looking at um, figures in the secondhand market. Uh, okay, quick quiz. How many bulkers overall, so we're talking handies up to cheap size new customers, how many do you think have changed hands in the second hand market this year? Oh gosh, I wouldn't. Yes. I honestly wouldn't have a clue. Um, on the second hand market, uh, yeah, a couple of hundred. One thousand and forty-two. Good lord! Crazy. I mean, I, I guess some of these may have failed, but um, let's say it's over a thousand. Yeah. Um, you know, people have been you know, just just buying up anything and everything although i do notice the the the, the bulkers that have been changing hands recently it's kind of mainly smaller sizes and they're all quite old vessels um i think earlier in the year you had some of the the, the big owners who were really on the hunt for really modern tonnage and quality tonnage and now it's kind of um <laughs> bits and pieces of the rest of it i guess um yeah it, and um and then asset prices as well i mean you know we can talk all day about um like dry bulk equities have taken absolute battering recently um obviously we've, we've touched on ffas freight uh is going down as well if you look at asset prices uh not at all um so <laughs> a five-year-old cape size for example is worth 52 percent more than it was a year ago yeah um this is a this is just look i'm just looking at vesselsvalue.com um other online platforms are available um so there is so that's something else that's kind of typified what we've seen this year is this big disconnect between absolutely everything you know we've got the distinct tonnages doing yeah. their own thing in their own markets and then to, uh every, yeah everything and, and then to it's add in even more volatility really i mean you've got uh you've got mm -hmm. the whole esg question coming up you know you've got uh You've got the, the, the shipping out. community being yeah, dumped dumped into some might say the uh, the, the compulsory uh, European carbon market uh, as of next year, and uh, and you've also got you know deep deep questions that we've been debating all year about uh, what the future fuels will be, which obviously has been also holding back people from committing to, to quite expensive new building orders at the moment um, if they don't know what kind of engine they're going to need. So. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it's, um, it's another level of volatility, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and just to blow your mind with some more data. Um, okay. So according to Clarkson's data, 36% of the Cape size order book is LNG ready or LNG capable, Interesting. Uh, which to me seems like a huge proportion. That is, that and... is. But then, <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's a massive proportion. And then on the other hand, you've just had, which, which was it? A Japanese owner just announced, uh, yeah. 
that they're switching entirely over to green ammonia engines with all of their new building orders from now on. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So you've just got you've yeah. you've got both fuels still represented here. We'll have to see a little more of engines that can switch between. I suspect, but uh, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So these are so these these capsizes I just mentioned there. So it's described as LNG ready or LNG capable. Interesting. Um, presumably, they are trying to hedge their bets um, because you know LNG isn't a perfect marine fuel in terms of carbon emissions. No. Um, so I wonder how that will play out in the future. Well, this is the whole problem, really, is that we we don't know what we're planning for. Exactly. Um, in terms of marine future fuels and, and even um, so golden ocean golden ocean a uh, uh, i cover quite closely so they placed some orders earlier this year and um all of those vessels are dual fuel ready so again they haven't committed to what kind of future marine fuel they're going to choose but they are trying to build in the flexibility to to use Whatever it is in the future, uh, I we're going to use. That's what we're going to so. see in terms of vessel design mm -hmm. and engine design, aren't we? Uh, being prepared for for all possible fuels where where they can, you know. Um, and also, everyone jumping on the bandwagon as soon as we know which one it is. <laughs> exactly, and then a large number of new orders uh, if the market is still at reasonable levels. And uh, then come, you yeah, get two thousand and seven. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right, <laughs> two thousand and eight. For there. And there's also issues of reporting, right? There's no standard for all of these points as we talk about emissions yeah. and, you know, record keeping. Mm -hmm. And you've got the EU compulsory thing coming in January 2023. That's another issue as well, isn't it? Yeah, people are confused by that and, and very confused on what to do in the voluntary as well. I mean, do you run into this, Holly? Oh, totally. I mean, we've, Tradewinds has been covering this all year long. Um, ship owners moaning about wanting to do something about ESG reporting and then uh, finding the, the clarity and standards very confusing, um, uh, and then also I mean it's a very it's a very noisy space because you know as well as you know these these owners who want to 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 report their ESG performance, but then you've got noise also being added by things like the IMO um, regulations, Poseidon principles, uh, European Union targets and regimes. Um, so who would want to be a ship owner right now? It seems very confusing. Yeah, it's, it's as we said, yeah, the outlook is just affected by so many different factors right now. Um, and so, uh, you know, on, on, on the broader sense, it still looks like it's probably going to be, I'm going to go out on a limb here, a decent time to be a ship owner for the next few years uh, with the fundamentals. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, clouded by a, a hell of a lot of uncertainty uh, across the board. Um, mm -hmm. From uh, from what fuel you're going to use to uh, to what Chinese, you know, mineral demand will be. So yeah, exactly. And also, I think it's important to kind of um, to think about the smaller ship owners as well. You know, and um, you know the guy in Paris who has two or three ships. How is he going to move towards zero carbon fuels? Or whatever? Exactly. Um, in fact, we've we've also done reports this year about the that there may be a gap in liquidity or um, a shortage of financing for those ship owners who who want to do that, um, but are not able, who aren't like the big boys and able to, you know, access bank financing, whatever. Yeah. So so that's an interesting narrative to follow as well. I mean, all ship owners aren't creative people, unfortunately, and I think um, the big boys are probably going to be fine. <laughs> and some of the smaller owners will find it incredibly difficult, I'm afraid. 
Well, if they need to help hedge some of that risk, they can always contact us. Just throwing out a pitch there. <laughs> they can read trade winds to find out about it and they can contact FIS. To hedge it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there we go. But Kerry talks about going out on a limb and it wouldn't be getting towards the last bit of the podcast unless we actually made somebody commit to some future predictions. Obviously, there is no legal or any other point that we can actually hold you to account on any of these things. But um, let's say we're coming back again in a, exactly a year's time for another one of these podcasts. Kerry, what will you be saying in your intro about the, the dry freight market? And Holly, what will you be saying about what's going on in the market? Kerry, where, we, where would the market be to start with? Go on, put, <laughs> well, you want a specific I'll, number? Yeah, yeah, like or a range. I'll, I'll allow a range. Okay, I'm, I'm going to say the market's going to be thirty to 50,000 on the capes and, uh, and a year from now. And uh, I, think, uh, I think probably twenty to 30,000 on the Panamaxes. Cool. Holly, your perspective of what's going to be happening in these uh, dry markets in a year's time? Um, I think that next year, so what, what, ne what year is next year? 2022. I think we'll see a probably a return. <sighs> oh, my God. I'm going to eat my words so hard next year. I know. I'm already thinking uh, it myself. Something. <laughs> I don't even want to say what I'm going to say because, anyway, um, I'm just tempting fate. Um, I think you'll see something of a return to rationality um, because I think we will be in a better place with respect to COVID-19. Um, there'll be a more seasonal, um, a more normal um, seasonal cycle, um, which we didn't really have this year um, as much. And so I think Kerry's probably right, 35 to 50,000 freight, something like that. Um, although as the, as the current market shows, I mean, the, the fundamentals are kind of the same as they were two months ago when the freight was really high. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, exactly. Sentiment the, does have a, a weigh in on this. The, yeah, so. Yeah, exactly. The, the freight is whatever people will pay. Um, yeah, I think um, I think there's there's a, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic overall about dry bulk, um, and I'm not just saying that because I write about it all, every day. Um, yeah, I, I I would hope that we see a more more rational market uh, next year. Cool. And there's Theo. Where are we going to be on these uh, iron ore prices? You thought you might get away from that having to answer. <laughs> I know. Well, who knows. I'd say something sub 70, definitely, is my pick. Strong, so, strong. Unless you have some sort of like weather, crazy weather effect in Q1, then I can't see any reason why it would be anything above $70. Cool. And I think it we're going to make good progress on these uh, Iranian uh, discussions, and that's going to be coming on the market, and we should sort out to a normal level of those EIA figures or anything to take anything from. Supply should be a lot better, so we'd probably be in a 60 to 70 range on Brent, taking off maybe about 20% cost of uh, bunkers from where they are now. So there we go. We've 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 put a flag there on the ground go. now. Yeah, we now proceed with the online abuse. Exactly. <laughs> but it just uh, leads me to obviously thank Holly for joining us this week and uh, for giving all her insight and everything that she's been covering in this absolutely crazy year in the dry freight markets. Oh, thank you for having me. I've I've so enjoyed it. I hope I can come back one day. Definitely. And uh, of course to Theo and Kerry for their usual insights on what we're going on. And just left me to say to everyone listening, do join us again next week. 